One of my favorite books in high school was Ray Bradbury's dystopian classic, Fahrenheit 451. A lot of people don't know what the title means, Fahrenheit 451, but it's made clear by the subtitle, Fahrenheit 451, the temperature at which books burn. And the novel is about a dystopian future America where all books have been outlawed and any book that is found is burned. In this future, there's a group of people called firemen, and their job is not to put out fires, but to start fires. They get calls of people hiding uh, books, and they respond by setting them on fire. The main character starts off as one of these firemen, and he responds to a call on a bold woman who is discovered to have a hidden stash of books, and he responds, but he's shocked when this woman chooses to ignite herself on fire with her books instead of give them up. Bradbury wrote this novel in 1953, the beginning of the Cold War. We typically associate the communists with this type of totalitarian control of information, and the Nazis were known for their book burning as well. But at that time, some in America were acting the same way. They were reacting so hard against communism that they were uh, infringing on people's liberty and freedom. And so Fahrenheit 451 was partly a cautionary tale against the the government abusing their power and stealing people's liberty and freedom and controlling information. Now, when you read a book like this, you might think it's an interesting tale of fiction, but, you know, that would never really happen. Like, the government would ever really burn and ban all books and burn people with their books. I mean, that'd never happen. And who knows? I can't say if that ever will happen in the future. But at the very least, I can tell you, it's happened in the past. This has really happened. Truth is often stranger than fiction, and in this case, the truth is much darker than fiction. There was a time not too long ago when the powers that be banned certain books, and he caught in possession were literally burned with their books. The time was 500 years ago. The place was England and Europe. The powers that be were the Catholic Church, and the book was the Bible. Some are shocked to hear this, thinking like, wait, why would the Catholic Church burn the Bible and people with it? The answer is for the simple crime of possessing a Bible in in a translation of the common language, such as English. Some of you have heard this part of history before. Others, this might be the first time you're hearing this, and you might be sitting there shocked, wondering, is that really true? Did that really happen? In the facts of history, they're, they're stubborn things. They're hard to ignore and just make go away. And so if you would humor me a little bit, I want to give you a little bit of a history lesson by way of an extended introduction here as we get going. And you'll see where I'm going with this, but it'll get us up to speed. It was back in the 4th century, especially after Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, the church started to change more and more and shift and morph into something else. It got more power, and power tends to corrupt. And over the centuries, it morphed into what we would call today the Catholic Church. New beliefs and practices started to emerge, and they they dominated the church. Things like purgatory, the veneration of Mary, the sacraments. In addition, this new hierarchy emerged that, even though it wasn't in the Bible, the church came to be dominated by popes and priests and monks and nuns and all these different leaders. This new organism was growing and taking shape over the years. Later, the Roman Empire fell 
And that's when the Catholic Church really stepped up and stepped into that void, assuming even more power over the state. And eventually a new empire emerged. It's not the Roman Empire. It was now the Holy Roman Empire, where the church and the pope were the supreme authorities. Now they had absolute power. And as the saying goes, absolute power corrupts absolutely. The church became known for its immense corruption, greed, immorality, and hypocrisy. The clergy were effectively the ruling class over the people. And they were living large in luxury as the people were living in destitution. Now, <coughs> excuse me, how do rulers maintain their control over the people? Typically through fear. And so kings would wield the sword and keep people in line through fear of the sword, fear of death. Well, the Catholic Church wielded two weapons of fear and control, the sword and fire, meaning the fires of hell. They kept people pressed under their thumb by fear of the sword, which they wielded to execute heretics. In addition, they also kept people in line through the greater fear of hell, that if you don't have the popes and the priests' blessing, you're not going to heaven. They held the keys to the kingdom. Unless you do everything the priest tells you to do, you're out. You're, you're going to burn forever. And meanwhile, the gospel message we hear today just wasn't preached. The good news of Jesus Christ who died on the cross to pay for our sins in full, who rose from the dead to offer us new and everlasting life, that we could be completely reconciled to God by faith, that we would not perish forever, but live forever as a gift of his grace. This good news is just absent from the land, absent from the church. Instead, the truth had been exchanged for a different gospel, a gospel of works, which is no gospel at all. Really, it's, the message was, if, if you want in the kingdom, you've got to do what the priests and the pope says. You have to go through them. You need the authority of the priesthood to remit your sins. You need to do works of penance to pay for your sins. Also, you have to merit your own righteousness through good deeds like prayer, fasting, pilgrimage, taking Eucharist, communion, and of course, giving money. Christ's work on the cross really wasn't enough. Even after you die, there's a good chance you'll still have to spend maybe a thousand years in purgatory where you continue to expunge your own guilt and sin before you're finally qualified to truly enter heaven. If you know the Bible at all today, this should sound crazy to you because none of this is in the Bible. But realize back then people didn't have access to the Bible. They had no knowledge of God's word. This is before the printing press, so personal copies of the Bible didn't exist. No, Unless you're super rich, you didn't have your own copy of the Bible. And even if you did, the Bibles were all in Latin, and nobody spoke Latin anymore. No one understood Latin, the common people. And so you would go to Mass, which was conducted entirely in Latin, and you had no idea what was being said, what was going on. You had no clue. All you knew is when the time came, you'd give a little money, you'd eat this little piece of bread, and you'd take a sip of wine, and you were told that's what it takes to enter heaven, just stay in line. This is all you knew from birth to death was this system. It was a time of spiritual blindness, and that blindness was imposed by the clergy, by the very ones who were supposed to shepherd the people of God. 
<clears throat> in, in reality, the, the papacy knew that their practices didn't line up with Scripture. And they knew that to keep the people in line, fear and ignorance were paramount to their power. And therefore, they actually worked hard to prevent the Bible from getting into the hands of the people in their own language. In fact, it became illegal. Listen to this decree, which is from the Church Council of Toulouse in 1229 AD. I mean, you all remember 1229 AD, right? It says this, quote, Canon 14, We prohibit also that the lady should not be permitted to have the books of the Old or New Testament. We most strictly forbid their having any translation of these books, end quote. And a few years later, the Council of Tarragona added this, quote, No one may possess the books of the Old and New Testaments, and if anyone possesses them, he must turn them over to the local bishop within eight days so that they may be burned, end quote. And so inquisitors were sent out to each parish, searching every house, and if Bibles were found, Latin or otherwise, they were burned. Starting to sound like Fahrenheit 451, but it would get much worse than this. Let me take you a little bit further, so humor me a little further. Fast forward to the 1370s, and a man, an Englishman named John Wycliffe arose, teaching in Oxford, and he came to oppose the Catholic Church. In studying the scriptures, he had come to realize how corrupt the whole system had been, how far they had gotten away from the Bible, what the Bible actually said. So he called for reforms that, regarding the greed, the immorality, and the uh, abuses of the church. Wycliffe opposed the whole papacy, believing that the Pope held no more keys to the kingdom than any other priest. Rather, he believed the gospel alone was a sufficient rule for God's people. No other rule or church tradition was needed. As you can imagine, this didn't make him too popular with the church. The bishops and the pope were irate with Wycliffe. They're constantly trying to to get to him, to take him down, to, to silence his voice. Because he was teaching at Oxford and elsewhere, he was preaching the gospel in English, in the common language of the people, and the word was getting out. Wycliffe's followers were were growing, and the Pope labeled them the Lollards. And at the time, it was meant to be an insult, the Lollards, because it's a term, and it basically was supposed to be a derogatory term for people who were only educated in English and didn't even know Latin. But they came to take this as a badge of honor, and they accepted and embraced this term, the Lollards, And they carried on this mission of just taking the gospel, taking God's word to the common people in the common language, in English. Well, then after that, Wycliffe did something truly unthinkable. He translated the Bible into English. For the first time, the whole Bible was translated into English so that people could just read it for themselves. What a novel thought. And see for themselves what God's word said, what the truth was, where they would come to the conclusion that the Catholic Church was far and away from what the church was intended to be. And he completed this first translation in 1382. The first time the whole Bible was translated into English. Well, the clergy had had enough. And in the same year, the Archbishop of Canterbury 
He assembled the, cl- the clergy in London to deal with Wycliffe, just get rid of him. So they all gathered together. And as they were gathering, though, an earthquake struck, a huge earthquake struck in London. And many feared it as an omen, thinking we had better not proceed against Wycliffe. And someone recalled how the last time the church tried to put Wycliffe on trial, the door of the church was blasted open by a lightning bolt. And people barely escaped with their lives as the church caught on fire. But the archbishop was undeterred, didn't care. And he still ended up declaring Wycliffe a heretic. All of Wycliffe's teachings were banned. Anyone associated with Wycliffe or anyone found in possession of his writings, including his English Bible, would face severe penalties. But thankfully, though, Wycliffe was protected by the leaders at Oxford, and the clergy never actually got to him. He died two years later of natural causes. But it's not the end of the story. A few years after that, 1384, his followers, the Lollards, they carried on his mission of teaching against Rome, of getting God's word to the people in English. And the the clergy were so furious at this, but the only problem was at that time in England, they didn't have the authority, the power to execute heretics. They couldn't actually kill heretics. But that was going to change. And a few years after that, in 1401, the British Parliament passed a statute called, quote, on the burning of a heretic, end quote. And it it marked the first time in British law, that people could legally be burned just for their religious views. It would not be the last. And after this, a heavy persecution began of Wycliffe's followers. Regarding Wycliffe, the Catholic Church was so upset over his legacy that a little bit later, 1415, the Council of Constance, they posthumously declared him a heretic and excommunicated him, even though he's already dead, They declared that his grave and memory should be uh, desecrated. So Wycliffe's bones were exhumed, burned, and then scattered in the river. They thought they could annihilate his legacy, his memory from the land. But his followers, they carried on. They continued to preach the gospel to the people. And over the next several decades, that's what they did, many at the cost of their lives. Many Lollards were burned at the stake, some with English Bibles tied around their necks. In southeast England, a monk named Richard Byfield converted just by reading the New Testament in English. So he was captured, brutally tortured, and and later burned. Thomas Spainard was burned at the stake for merely saying the Lord's Prayer in English. James Morton was burned at the stake for merely reading James's epistle in English. And there are many stories like this. At some burnings, the priest told the people that if they contributed and brought, brought wood to burn a heretic, they would be given an indulgence that would allow them to sin for 40 days. Does this sound like the vision Jesus had for his church? Uh, I don't think so. And so all this corruption, wickedness, and hypocrisy had finally come to a boiling point. Although a few people were already standing for the truth and giving their lives for it, real winds of change were coming. And 100 years later, after Wycliffe, a man named Martin Luther would spark that change. And on October 31st, 1517, that spark was ignited 
and would lead to a firestorm called the Protestant Reformation. Very soon, here in our day, we're coming up to, like we've been saying over and over, the the 500-year anniversary of that time, of that day, the beginning of this Reformation, where men and women of God took a stand for the truth of God so that people could be free from their spiritual blindness and they could discover the true glory and saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the real good news of Christ, even if it cost them their lives. And for many of them, it did. The Reformation was a time when many finally broke away from the Catholic Church, which had become hopelessly corrupt. It could not truly be reformed from within, only from without. These people were not abandoning God or Christ, just this system, this corrupt system that had become what we call Catholicism. And instead, they just went back to the Bible, just the Bible alone as the only source of authority and truth for for the church, rediscovering the gospel of grace and faith in Christ alone. And we are descendants of that Reformation time and movement. And so this reason, or for this reason, during the month of October, we're going to be devoting our, our Sundays to highlighting this time. Not just for the sake of a history lesson, but that we too might not live in darkness, but might fully know and appreciate what we believe and why we believe it. Recognizing there was a time when thousands died to uphold the truths that we may even just take for granted. And get a little more specific now, during the Reformation, five phrases or slogans emerged that really summarized the basic principles of the Protestants in contrast to the Catholics. And these five pillars, they really do encapsulate the the fundamental differences between Christianity and Catholicism, even today. They're known as the five solas. The word sola means alone. We have sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. Five solas. And this month there happen to be five Sundays in October. And so over these next five Sundays, we're going to highlight these five solas or sole of the Reformation. One by one, building this contrast between truth and error. This is what we still believe. And unlike the Catholics, you need to know what you believe and why. You should absolutely understand these fundamentals of the true faith, not in ignorance, but in complete knowledge. Well, that was all a long, but I think necessary introduction to really set the stage for today and the the weeks to come. With the rest of our time now, we're going to explore the first of these solas, the first of these rallying cries of the Reformation, that the foundations of, of the church. And the first is sola scriptura, which itself is fundamental to the others. Foundation of the Reformation is no different from the foundation of, of the faith. And it's just the Bible, sola scriptura, scripture alone. The sole authority for the church We're going to learn about Martin Luther in the weeks to come. But he was the one to formally start this Reformation movement. There were others. But we're going to learn how he came to his understanding of the true gospel just by 
Just by reading the Bible. Just by going back to the Bible. He was a Catholic priest, so he actually had access to the Bible. And as he studied books like Romans and Galatians, he quickly realized that they presented God and the gospel contrary to that of the Catholic Church. These teachings were, were different. What the Bible said, what the church said, they're totally different. The Bible presented a salvation by faith, not by works. And going back to Wycliffe and others as well, all the reformers really driven by going back to the Bible. That was the fuel for the Reformation, just rediscovering the Bible. God's word was never lost. It was just hidden once it was found, and especially once it was translated into the common language of the people. Even the Catholic Church, with all their might, couldn't stop the the tidal wave of reform that was going to sweep over the land. Now, to this, some might say, like, okay, well, What's really the difference here? Because I thought Catholics believe the Bible, right? I thought they, they believe the Bible is God's word and its authority for the church. So, and that's true. So what's really the difference here? Well, the difference comes down to the, the fact that Catholics have still today two sources of authority for what they believe and what they do. You have scripture plus tradition. Scripture plus tradition. And in their system, scripture and tradition are given equal footing, equal sources of authority for the church. Tradition. What do they mean by tradition? Well, scripture, they would say, consists of the authoritative writings of the apostles, like the New Testament. But tradition, they would say, refers to the authoritative teachings of the apostles. Teachings which weren't written down at first, but passed down orally through apostolic succession. And these, these, these authoritative teachings were passed from the apostles to the early church fathers, from the fathers to the church councils and the popes, and on it goes. And so basically, all the official teaching of the church fathers and councils and popes forms a second layer of God's word for the church. And it carries the same authority as scripture. It's binding. So the difference just boils down to this. Scripture alone or scripture plus tradition. What's your authority? What guides your what you believe and what you do authoritatively? Scripture alone or scripture plus tradition. Catholics understand this. They don't apologize for this. Still today, their, their modern Catholic catechism says this, quote, the church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence, end quote. It's crystal clear that they're not apologizing for this. Catholics don't technically teach that these traditions are a part of the Bible or should be included in the Bible, but they might as well because, in effect, they've created a second law, a second standard. And in reality, this body of tradition, it's it's huge, and it functionally plays a much larger role in their belief and practice. These traditions, they just kept growing over the centuries, with the net result is that now you have all these beliefs and practices. They're not found anywhere in the Bible. In fact, many of them straight up contradict the Bible. We're talking about traditions like prayer to the saints, the veneration of Mary, including her immaculate conception, 
and assumption into heaven. Transubstantiation, papal authority, priestly confession, purgatory, the sacraments, and of course, the selling of indulgences, which they still believe, by the way, which is toned down. But the Protestant reformers came to rightly reject this second source of authority. And we continue that protest today. And the very foundation of the church and the Reformation is sola scriptura, scripture alone, the Bible, the only authoritative rule for faith, belief, practice for Christ's church. Understand this. Where does the authority of scripture come from? Where does the authority of scripture come from? It comes from God based on inspiration. The reason we recognize the authority of these 66 books and believe that they're authoritative over our life, we submit to them in faith and practice, the reason is because they came from God. They are God's written word via inspiration. Yes, they were written by men, but men who were overshadowed and moved by God such that what they wrote was the very written word of God. That's what gives the Bible its authority, its divine revelation. And so listen to 2 Peter 1.21. It says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's scripture. Or of course, 2 Timothy 3.15-17. Paul says to Timothy that from childhood you've known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom That leads to salvation through faith in Christ. All scripture is inspired by God. Literally, God breathed. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, adequate for every good work. So see clearly the authority of God's written word and it's based on inspiration that same inspiration was not afforded to the church fathers. The canon was closed. No more authoritative revelation was given. What's ironic is that the church fathers themselves understood this fact. They wrote epistles. They wrote letters and commentaries. But they all understood that their writing was not inspired. It was not authoritative and binding for the church. It was clearly a a, a tier below the writings of the apostles, that they acknowledged that. God's word was complete after the age of the apostles. The canon was closed. This is the rule for the church. That's it. And that completed word, the canon, was sufficient. Like we just read in 2 Timothy 3, the scriptures says these sacred writings, they're able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation which is through faith in Christ. I mean, if that's true, that the scriptures, these sacred writings, they can give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ. If that's true, why would you ever prohibit people from accessing these sacred writings in their own language? Why would you want to stop that? The point is, though, you don't need anything else. God gave us everything we need. This inspired scripture is profitable for all things, He says, for training in righteousness, that that you, the man or woman of God, would be adequate and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Not a few, but every good work. It's sufficient. 
Nothing more is needed. Like Second Peter 1, 3 says, God has given to us everything according to life and godliness. We have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Jesus himself prayed regarding the future of his church, John 17, 17. He said to the Father, sanctify them, the future church, in your truth, your word is truth. God's word is all the church needs. This is the sufficiency of scripture. God's complete revelation is all the church needs to know God, to serve God, to live for God. We're not saying the Bible is exhaustive. It's not. We don't learn about calculus or cell biology in the Bible. That's not what we're saying here, obviously. We're just saying the Bible is sufficient for all knowledge of God and godliness. All we need, all God deemed that we need to know him and serve him. Realize Jesus himself settled this whole issue a long time ago. Then just think, you know, I wonder, is there some example in the Bible we have this group of religious authorities who created their own man-made system of tradition and imposed it on top of the Bible and even used their traditions to overturn God's written word? Like, I wonder, has that happened before? And indeed it has, and Christ himself sharply condemned it. Why don't you turn to Mark 7, if you will. You can listen along or you can, you can follow along in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, you get some scribes and Pharisees, and they come up to Jesus here. And you know these were some of the religious leaders of Israel, experts of the law, full of a self-righteousness. They knew the law, they kept the law, and therefore they were, they were better than you. They were closer to God. The only problem is that these laws weren't in the Bible. They had devised their own system of traditions and rules which they were masters of, which they used to lord over the people. And one of the main reasons they hated Jesus was because he had zero regard for their traditions. And so in Mark 7, they approach Jesus because his disciples are breaking their traditions. They're eating without ceremonially washing their hands. Mark 7, look at verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him, Jesus, when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands. That is unwashed. Verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? Here is Jesus. He claimed to be this great rabbi and teacher. But in their mind, he, he couldn't be because he had no regard for the traditions, the traditions of the elders. He, he can't be that righteous if he doesn't keep their law. And that's the issue they have. This washing here is just one example of the, the thousands of rules and traditions they added on top of Scripture. The Jews originally just had the Old Testament. But they came to realize over time that God had judged Israel so harshly 
Because they failed to keep the law. That's why they lost the temple. That's why they lost the land. So after the exile, they they vowed together they were never going to let that happen again. They were going to keep God's law to the extreme. And to help them do that, they were even going to create a new law, a new set of rules, like a fence around God's law that would keep them from ever getting close to actually breaking one of God's laws. This second layer of rules and regulations expanded upon God's written law in the Old Testament. It was known as the Mishnah, and it was a set of rules and traditions in addition to Scripture to to make them more holy. But the problem was that this new law quickly became more authoritative than God's actual word. God's written word was even overturned by this new set of rules. They only ended up obscuring and perverting God's word. And over time, this huge religious system had formed, built uh, over God's word, supplanting God's law, missing the intent of God's law. They ended up creating a system of works righteousness, completely missing God and the point. And so let's, let's hear Christ's response. The, the Pharisees that come up to Jesus, they're upset. He's breaking their tradition. Jesus says, verse 6, And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. They can pretend to be as close to God as they want, and they can even fool themselves, but in reality, their hearts are light years away from God. And in verse 7, Jesus gives a stunning condemnation. He says, in vain do they worship God. Their worship is false. It's worthless. All their prayers, all their washings, all their traditions, all their tithes means nothing to God. Their hearts are far from him. And Jesus effectively condemns this whole system they've created built on tradition. And to finish verse 9, he was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. Long story short, the Jews had taken the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, and they completely overturned it through their traditions. They created this law of vows, basically a loophole. You could vow your money away, and that way you didn't have to actually take care of your aging parents financially. You just, you know, you kept your money, basically. So you can see why Jesus condemns them. They weren't just adding to God's word. They were invalidating God's word with their traditions. They were effectively replacing God's word, taking what God had said, setting it aside, and replacing it with what they had said, their own traditions. It's the very definition of legalism, and the product is false worship. The issue is not simply tradition. Tradition is not inherently evil. 
there can be room for tradition in the church. For example, how should pastors or church leaders dress? The Bible doesn't say at all. So we we choose to wear a suit. It's culturally acceptable. That's fine. If Catholic tradition merely concerned garments, there would be no reformation. It's not that big of a deal. But the problem is when your tradition starts going against Scripture, overturning Scripture, contradicting Scripture. The problem is when your new traditions start to distort the gospel into something else, into a, a new gospel. Then you have a big problem. The Jews were guilty of that, and the Catholics are guilty of the exact same thing. It's literally the exact same error. They've, they've just repeated history. Remember, God gave Israel his written law, authoritative, and he told them once it was done to not do one thing. Deuteronomy 4.2, he said, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Don't add to it. You don't need to add to it. It's fine. Sola Scriptura. It means scripture is our sole authority. You can have some traditions, sure, but everything bows to the authority of God's word, not the other way around. The Bible alone is given as the standard for life and godliness, faith and practice in the church. Any tradition that goes against scripture in any way must be abandoned as contrary to God's will. So I trust you can see now how though Catholics have committed literally the exact same error as the scribes and Pharisees, which Christ condemned. They've fallen into the exact same pit of legalism by creating a system of tradition which they used to overturn God's word, which has, in effect, distorted the gospel. Theirs, just like the Jews, has now become a system of works righteousness, which, like I said, it's no gospel at all. Therefore, in vain do they worship God, that their traditions, their practices, it's not worship. God has no regard for it. Teaching as doctrine the precepts of of men, rather, they're condemned by the Lord himself because they even invalidate the word of the Lord by their own traditions. For this, we cannot stand. We must continue to protest. That's why we're called the, the Protestants. We must stand, rather, for sola scriptura, scripture alone. This is the one and only sufficient foundation for the church. This is all the church needs to know and to serve Christ. And it's the very foundation for even our local church today. So a scripture is part and parcel with who we are, what we do as a church. And we submit ourselves to scripture's authority. I told you before about Wycliffe. But 150 years later came another Englishman named William Tyndale. And he continued the work of translating the Bible into English. He was the first, actually, to make an English translation straight from the Greek and the Hebrew. And he actually, this time, he had the printing press, so he was mass-producing these. Tyndale was influenced by Luther, and he opposed all the same corrupt practices and beliefs of the Catholic Church. The only problem was England was still Catholic at that time, and they were still burning heretics. In fact, King Henry VIII had just decreed this, quote, He said, whoever reads the scriptures in Wycliffe's learning, meaning English, will forfeit land, cattle, goods, body, and life 
from themselves and their heirs forever and be condemned as heretics to God, enemies to the crown, and complete traitors to England, end quote. So that's coming from the king. So Tyndale fled. He had to leave. He, he left England. He went to Europe. And that's where he did the work of translating the Bible into English and now printing it in mass. And he finished that in 1525. The next year, though, the bishops ordered all copies of Tyndale's English Bible to be burned in public. Inquisitors were sent after Tyndale to try and capture him, get him back to England for, for justice. But he didn't stop. He kept printing and distributing English Bibles, knowing that God's word alone was the fuel of this Reformation. Just, just get it out there, and it'll start changing people. His Bibles were smuggled back into England. The Bishop of London himself actually purchased 6,000 copies to have them burned, but the money kept the operation going. Tyndale later wrote that the church authorities banned translations into the mother tongue, quote, to keep the world still in darkness, to the intent that they might sit through vain superstition and false doctrine, to satisfy their filthy lusts, their proud ambition, and insatiable covetousness, and to exalt their own honor above God himself, end quote. Well, sadly, though, Tyndale was eventually betrayed by a fellow Englishman, captured imprisoned for 500 days before he was finally uh, killed at the stake. They strangled him first, then they burned his body. His final words were reported as, quote, Lord, open the king of England's eyes, end quote. And two years later, that prayer was answered. There was a huge turnaround in England where the king himself went from burning English Bibles to endorsing them and authorizing them. An official English Bible was produced, and it basically was Tyndale's translation. In fact, Tyndale's translation itself would later go on to become the basis of the King James Bible. This is the power of sola scriptura. God's word alone has the power to change people's lives, to change entire nations. It must simply be unleashed. And the lesson for us today is to just remember this and appreciate the value of God's word. It's complete in authority, complete in sufficiency. The Bible really is all you need for life and godliness. So therefore, what should you do? Let's seek it out. Find it. Implant it in your heart. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, that you would know God's word and will for your life. And then heed that will. Submit yourself not to the traditions of men or churches or others, but to God's word written, revealed for your benefit. He's given it to you for your blessing. So let it be the defining rule for you and your family. And finally, cherish God's word. Realize no one is actually entitled to access the Bible. God never promised everyone would have access to the Bible. Many died to bring you access to the Bible in English. So give thanks to God for that and regard his word as truly precious in your life. Don't take it for granted. There's a sad irony today. The Reformation fires, they've all died down. And here we are, we've got the Bible in English. We have millions of Bibles in English, no shortage. No one's trying to burn Bibles anymore. No one's trying to stop you from reading the Bible in English anymore. That, that stuff is all done and, and over. 
But I think the enemy today has employed a different tactic, perhaps far more effective, namely distraction. Most people today, they're so thoroughly distracted in life, they have no time for God's word, no desire for it. Before there was no access to God's word. Now there's like unlimited access, yet biblical literacy has dropped. Don't let that be you. See the treasure you've inherited in God's word, even in your own tongue, and cherish it, God's word revealed. And then be a people, men and women of God, who found their lives on the book, and the book alone. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Let's pray. Our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we, we bless your name this morning. We see your hand of providence over history. All has moved according to your will, yet we, we thank you, Lord, uh, Lord, that 500 years ago, by your, your grace and your providence, you, you lifted the darkness over the land of England and, and Europe, which would come to our place, uh, America, over time, where the light shone again in the country and in the hearts and lives of, of people the light of the gospel, the light of the word. Your word, Lord, is a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. And it, it's all we need for life and godliness. In it, we know you, your will. We see your son and your salvation, which you purchased for us so many years ago. We give you thanks, Lord, and I pray that as we are, are the benefits of this history, we, we've not fought any of these battles. We, we take this for granted. We have dozens of Bibles lying around, catching dust. Lord, I just pray we would not forget these lessons of the past, that we would live rightly before you now, knowing full well what we believe and why, and not taking it for granted. We have your word, the privilege of your word in our hands in this moment, in our own native tongue, that we could know you. And so may we, Lord, be convicted to be more men and women of the book, devoting our lives to it, that we might devote our lives to you in truth. So we bless your name and thank you for your word revealed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.